Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. Joining us today, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the... Oh, man. That's right. They'll edit yeah. it. Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. Joining me today, we have Russ McCullough, the Wayne Angel Chair of Economics and the founder of the Gortney Institute, as well as Dr. Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. All right. And our special guest is Dr. Rosemarie Fike. Uh, she is currently at... Texas Christian University and is also a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Now, Dr. Fike has an interesting background and connection to the Gortney Institute since she was a graduate student of Dr. Jim Gortney's back at Florida State University, where she got her PhD in 2015. Prior to that, she was at Peter's old stomping grounds of George Mason University for her master's degree. And her current research focuses in on the understanding of the effects that different types of economic institutions have on the lives and status of women. She's the author of the Fraser Institute's Women in Progress Report, and her areas of focus are on economic development, public choice, and new institutional economics. Rosemary, it's nice to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, so tell us a little bit about this work that you do. It's uh, fascinating uh, exploring around the world uh, the impact of economic freedom uh, specifically on, on women's lives. Yeah, so I'll just give you a little kind of history on how I got started on the project because as a Courtney student, um, we work a lot with the Economic Freedom of the World Index. And at the time I was in graduate school, um, we were having a conversation about you know, it's it's nice that there's low taxes or stable monetary policy in certain places, but, you know, in about 50% of the population in several countries in the world, you know, people don't have access to those rights. And so um, he said, why don't you get some data and see if you can come up with a way to adjust the economic freedom index to account for gender differences. And so that became kind of the main focus of my dissertation and has really branched off into kind of an entire research agenda from there. And actually influenced the the way it's calculated, right? From yeah. that point forward, which is really neat. Yeah. Lasting it's, impact. It's hard. It, it kind of, it, one of my friends said, you changed the way we measure economic freedom. And when she put it that way, I was like, oh yeah, I mean, I, I did, but it's, you know, it's, it's, I think, and, and that's the unique feature of that particular freedom index. There isn't another index that really takes those gender differences into consideration. And if you don't, then you're really overstating how economically free several places are. Yeah, Rosemary, could you give us an example of a country that might appear to have really high economic freedom, but once you take into account like the the lack of rights afforded to women, uh, in reality, it's not that economically free if you consider that? Yeah, so there's um, most of the countries that have significant restrictions on women's rights are places like in the Middle East, North Africa, and Southeast Asia. Okay. So Jordan always stands out as a country that it's it's relatively economic free on the surface, but once you make an adjustment for gender differences, it really plummets in the economic freedom rankings. It's kind of one of the biggest. Um, like Saudi Arabia and the UAE actually used to be 
really bad in terms of economic restrictions on women's economic freedom. Um, but in the past couple of years, they've actually um, given women more economic rights, the ability to travel around the country without an escort. And, and so, so my go-to examples previously would have been UAE and Saudi Arabia, but they've actually made some significant improvements. Well, it's probably hard to know, but maybe some of your work influenced that too, right? Kind of calling it to their attention. I'm sure other human rights groups have for a number of years. Well, there is something to be said when you, when you measure something and you have an index and, you know, people do make investment decisions based on economic freedom rankings um, it does influence things and so once you have you're measuring that and you're putting it out there I think people do have a, a tendency to kind of think about okay why do we compare why are we so low relative to other people I did have a phone call with some people from Poland a couple years after I started doing this and they wanted to know like why are we getting a low score on the gender adjustment? Because they're like, women have property rights here. But they had a lot of gendered labor market laws. So like women couldn't do jobs that no. had required heavy lifting or they couldn't work at night. Hmm. And then like a year or two after I had that conversation, I'm looking at the data again. And then Poland's gendered labor laws went away. Wow. So I don't want to say that I did that, but I did have a conversation yeah, with somebody. Well, I don't want to take total credit stuff. for that, but um, you know, it was very coincidental that that happened shortly after we had a call. Yeah, yeah. Could you spell out maybe what the criteria are and what counts as like a great score? In yeah. So um, the data that I use, I get from the World Bank. So they have this wonderful report that they put together every year called Women, Business, and the Law. And women, business, and the law measures a lot of um, policies that are, you know, things that we might uh, find important if we care about, like, women's labor market performance. Um, it contains a lot of data on things that I would consider entitlements. So, like, um, paid maternity leave, all of those things. Those are not the things that I include in the gender adjustment. I focus on... Um, strictly like restrictions on women's negative economic freedom. Um, so things like, do women have the same ability to apply for a passport as a man does? Um, do women have the ability to open a bank account in the same way? Can they engage in contractual agreements and start a business? Can they be the head of household um, and make these important you know, family decisions? Um, and then I have a few variables that have specific, you know, can they get a job in the same way as a man? Can they work at night? Can they work in dangerous jobs? Can they work in industrial jobs? Um, can they own property? Can they inherit property? And it's all relative to men. Um, do they, it's basically capturing, do they have, do women have additional restrictions that men don't have to face when it comes to these um, economic rights? Um, I also include a variable that captures, do women legally have to obey their husband? Mm. Right. So because um, there's many countries where, you know, maybe women have the ability to work, but if their husband says, no, I don't want you working. 
that's the law. And so, um, so there's, there's 17 total components and I treat it as a dummy variable essentially. So if there is a restriction that women face that men don't have to face, the country gets a zero. And if there's no restrictions on women's rights that, you know, above and beyond what men face, then the country gets a one. And I average those together and we just end up on a scale of zero to one, one meaning men and women are treated at least under the formal law, they're treated the same, anything less than one, that means there's substantial barriers that women have that men don't have to contend with. And so in practice, um, in the last edition of the Women in Progress report, there were 62 countries that we have data for where there's actually no legal difference between the way men and women are treated. Um, but like that doesn't mean that men and women are free in those countries. Like Venezuela is a country where men and women have the same level of economic freedom. They're both equally very unfree. Um, women <laughs> just don't have these additional barriers to contend with. <laughs> um, but then beyond that, I think the lowest score um, is about a 0.3. So that's, uh, I think, Sudan is what I think. I haven't, I, I don't remember if that's the lowest one, but I think Sudan is down at the bottom and in, in, in around a 0.3 range. Are the numbers um, weighted uh, equally? So I'm thinking like, okay, you have to legally obey your husband. Maybe that's worse <laughs> than number of hours worked or something like that. But I, that you, that'd be something hard to struggle with, I would think. Yeah, so I do weight each component equally. Um, basically, it's kind of in the spirit of the way the economic freedom of the world is calculated. Um, the thought process being that if somebody thinks that one component is more significant than others, then they can look at the data that I've put together for them and they can make decisions about how to weight that differently if they want. Mm -hmm. um, I used to have it where there were more than 17 components and a good chunk of those components were specific labor restrictions. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that completely overrepresented mm -hmm. sure. kind of those. That so area. so now, now that that's pared back a little bit, um, I think the the weighting things equally that makes sense to me um but yeah like it's very user-friendly if you think that something should be weighted more heavily that's it's very easy to sure. do that for yourself um but then when we use that to adjust the economic freedom index uh, we're using that only to adjust um area two of the economic freedom index which is a rule of law component um so like the protection of property rights and rule of law Basically, because if people aren't being treated equally under the law, that's a that's a rule of law issue. And yeah. so we will, you know, downward adjust the area two if women face any additional barriers that men don't face. And yeah. And uh, I don't want to get we've, we've talked about the index. We've had Jim Courtney on before, but listeners, the rule of law area is one of the five areas and uh, it kind of deals with access to police and courts. And are you going to get treated fairly? And so that's where. Uh, her work fits in under that category if men and women are being treated equally or not. Um, what about the outcomes? Um, what are some differences that you see in countries that uh, uh, for women in different types of countries and, and how they're treated with different outcomes? Yeah, so uh, there's a strong correlation between women flourishing 
and the level of economic freedom that they have. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so when I when I talk to people about um, women's rights, I, I, I talk about economic rights as being an essential human right that is necessary for women to flourish. It's maybe not sufficient for women to flourish, but it's necessary. And um, so they have longer life expectancies, they have higher incomes, they have higher labor force participation rates. Um, I know I had mentioned Saudi Arabia, um, just in the short amount of time since Saudi Arabia has removed some of the restrictions on women's rights, their labor force participation rate increased dramatically mm. um, at a time when the labor force participation rate of women around the world was falling because of COVID. Saudi Arabia's was rising <laughs> because women were suddenly allowed to do things that they weren't allowed to do before. Um, so, you know, they it, it just gives them more control over the direction of their life. It allows them to make choices about um, how they think they can make their life better. And so we see um, better educational attainment, higher rates of human capital development. So you're more likely to go to college. Um, and that makes sense because college is hard. And why on earth would I go through the effort of studying and paying the cost of going to college if I didn't have the ability to take those skills and, and earn money in the market um, by applying those skills? So if they're healthier, wealthier, and, um, you know, better educated. And, um, you know, even things like adolescent fertil fertility rates are significantly lower hmm. in places where women have economic freedom. Again, it's opportunity cost, right? right? The yeah. opportunity cost of having right. a kid at a young age is so much higher if you actually have the ability to work and, you know, earn income. Yeah. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot to take our break. So when we get back, we'll continue to explore some areas uh, related to uh, Dr. Fike's work. We'll be back in just a bit. Ottawa University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. Each of these fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating, but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis, but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics, but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. This spring, Ottawa University is organizing a PPE League competition of politics, philosophy, and economics. Students in this competition will compete leveraging the ideas of philosophy, politics, and economics in various events. If you're a professor or an advisor of college students and you're interested in your school competing in PPE League this spring, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. We have some great programming going on for high school students. We have an online microeconomics class. Yes, you can earn college credit for $200 by taking an online class. It's affordable, flexible, layered with support. Our new online micro is optimized for you. 
If you'd like to consider some events for your high school students or that class, please contact Justin, Peter, or Russ today. Okay, we're back and um, I want to continue on the discussion. Um, you've got some examples of uh, how this stuff kind of hurts people in the real world. Um, it'd be great to go into some of that. Yeah, so one of the my favorite ways to kind of think about the importance of economic rights for, for women's lives is to, to try to imagine a woman who's in a really unpleasant situation and what it might take for her to get out of that situation. So let's imagine you're a woman, you're married to somebody who is maybe violent, maybe emotionally abusive, maybe financially abusive, maybe physically abusive. Um, how do you get out of that situation um, without economic freedom? It's really hard because if you have economic freedom and you're in that situation, you might choose to get a job and open up a bank account that your spouse doesn't know about and start saving money here and there and start thinking about a plan to leave because you do have the ability to move freely outside of your home and maybe even to a different country. So the ability to exit a bad situation is greatly aided by economic freedom. Mm -hmm. So if you're a woman living in a country where you don't have those things, right? How, how do you get out? If you need your husband's permission to get a job, if you're not legally able to open a bank account and you need a adult male escort to take you anywhere outside of your house, um, escaping a bad situation seems almost impossible without economic freedom. Yeah, things that we take for granted in the United States. I mean, people struggle in a place where there is economic freedom like the United States to get out of bad relationships mm -hmm. but from the emotional relationship aspect of it. Yeah. And then you throw that on top of it, how difficult uh, it would really be. Are there any countries left to where women cannot file for divorce or something like that? Like we had years ago, even in the United States? There are a lot of countries, a lot of the same countries that have very strong restrictions on women's property rights and, and countries that um, you're legally obligated to obey your husband very often have rules that women can't file for divorce so we still have way. some of those countries yeah we still have some wow. of those countries is that in like africa or something or? most of the countries that have those types of laws are middle east north africa east, countries yeah, um and so yeah and and even like in the united states it wasn't even that long ago it was as late as the 80s where women still needed their husband's permission to get a credit card mm. Um, you know, and in some states, really, was it as late as it was as late as the eighties? Oh um, like I was alive when <laughs> people were not allowed to get a credit card without their husband. Um, and there are still some states. Now, this is not something that I measure, but there are still some states where, like, if a woman wants a hysterectomy or to get, um, you know, tubal ligation, like some sort of more more severe type of birth control, they need their husband's permission in order to be able to do that as mm -hmm. well. So yes, we have a lot of economic freedoms in the United States, but there are still kind of like lingering remnants of, of um, kind of a more oppressive system. Towards At women. the risk of getting sidetracked, mm -hmm. um, I thought of abortion. I'm just curious, like uh, 
do you have more freedom in a state that with different abortion laws since that's kind of a hot button again i don't want to get sidetracked yeah. abortion for crying out loud but i'm just curious if so i am highly because there's such variation on the state to state basis now i think that opens up a possibility to do a lot of research uh -huh. with kind of natural experiments yeah, on right. the way things have changed so i think that that's a question that would be better answered in a couple of years once we start to see how um kind of overturning roe v wade starts to play out yeah in practice listeners a natural experiment is something the uh, economists take advantage of when there's kind of an abrupt change in policy or law and then we can kind of see what the like ideally we'd create a, a an experiment like a chemist does and you can mix some things together well we can't do that in social studies uh but so then when when we have law changes that are significant it creates what we call a natural experiment that does allow us to test those things right and so we can match up a state that did suddenly make abortion restrictions with a state that has very similar characteristics otherwise but didn't make the same policy change and we can kind of compare the outcomes in, in places that look similar, but for that policy change. Yeah. Interesting. Justin, you had a question? Yeah. Um, earlier, you mentioned that uh, economic freedom seems to be a necessary, uh, but not sufficient condition for uh, the flourishing of women. Mm -hmm. And flourishing is, of course, like notoriously difficult to define, but... Mm -hmm. um, if these things, if we notice that there's a correlation between the two, then presumably we're measuring flourishing in some way. Right. So um, granted that it's very difficult to measure, what metrics do you look at to uh, measure flourishing? And then when you notice that it's correlated to economic freedom, what might be some of the other factors that explain why a country that is economic economically free does or or you know or fails to uh, mm -hmm. women in those countries do or fail to flourish yeah so first um the way i think about flourishing is you know, there's not one metric that is going to capture it you kind of have to look at a variety of things and so in the Women in Progress report, I kind of take three categories of development outcomes that we might care about, things related to labor market performance and financial well-being, things related to health and life expectancy, things related to education. Um, but we could look at you know other things as well. But um, generally, if people have you know, financial opportunities, they have their um, educational opportunities, and they're healthier, right, then that, that all of those three things together kind of would indicate that they are in a better position to flourish than than others would be. Um, so like prevalence of disease. Um, one of the things that I noticed is you know, countries where people are really economically free, you know, you have less deaths from preventable diseases, lower child mortality rates. Like that is to me, probably nothing more devastating could happen to somebody than the loss of a child. And so like to see that the likelihood of that happening goes down significantly with economic freedom, 
can lead me to believe that 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 is a place where people are better able to flourish um because you're not going to be as likely to encounter these kind of tragedies um so yeah flourishing I, I don't think you can capture just with one thing um some of the other things that I control for when I'm trying to to look at these correlations is I want to think about other types of rights so whether the political system is important whether we have you know democratic political institutions um what other types of civil liberties free speech freedom of the media do we have those tend to not be as significantly important for women's well-being as economic freedom is um but one thing I've been really interested in lately is thinking about culture and norms, specifically gender norms, um, because what we measure with the Economic Freedom Index and with the, the gender data that, that I've added to it, um, we're looking at like the way the law is written and the way the regulations are written and what people's attitudes are like on the ground could be very different from from the way the law is written and so um you, you can have a country that seems very economically free on paper but if the social norms and the attitudes are still suggesting you know women should not leave the house they should be taking care of the kids that's all that they should be doing then in practice um women in a country that has that general attitude they're still not going to have as many you know options for their life as as you know they might be in practice pretty unfree so i actually have been working on a paper for the fraser institute it's not released yet but um i've been working on a paper kind of determining you know, does economic freedom improve and by improve that's a, that's a weird way to put it but um does economic freedom is it associated with gender norms that are more tolerant of women taking on less traditional roles um, and so i do find that countries that are more economically free are less likely to have um, dominant views that job opportunities, education opportunities, and political leadership opportunities should be given to men over women. So I use kind of world value survey data for that. Um, and so that kind of lends a little bit of support for um, the do commerce thesis, like Montesquieu's do commerce thesis, that the idea that interacting with a market can help civilize you and help you build um, it, it can, you're not just trading goods and services, you are trading pieces of your attitudes and your culture through, through that exchange process. So if you're interacting with a society that has norms that are more tolerant of women making their own choices, then that could have an impact on the norms in your country as well. And so we do find some evidence uh, of that. So more economically free places have more tolerant gender norms and is that um something that you do like over time that their norms had here's what the rule of law was in 1985 and here's what it is today and now through the survey data 
we can kind of get a sense of culture changing. Is that yeah, so it's, it's when you're working with uh, the World Value Survey, it's kind of hard because it's conducted in waves. And so they'll ask like 20 countries a set of questions one year and then a different 20 countries another year. Hmm. And so it's staggered. And some countries they have data for, they have like five or six observations for some countries, they only have two or three. So we do the best we can with the messy data. So we, we are trying to look at um, the impact of economic freedom on gender norms. So I, I look at past economic freedom, like economic freedom five or 10 years ago compared to what the norms are like today. Um, and, to, and find that you know, places that are more economically free in the past tend to be um, more tolerant of women taking on these less traditional roles. Well, since this is the Faith and Economics podcast, um, the I don't want to presume that this is the case, but it seems like Islam um, and Islamic countries uh, are the ones that are having that are ranking lower. But I don't know that. But it, just the few that we've talked about. So in general, um, in addition to Islam and uh, Christianity and other things, do you see patterns like that of religion and how that sprinkles into culture and these outcomes? So I do. So there's a lot of countries that, um, so like La a lot of Latin American countries that have, you know, strong Catholicism, mm -hmm. they have a lot of, uh, well, women have property rights and, and things like that in, in those countries. Uh, there are a good amount of labor market restrictions on the types of jobs that women can do in those places. Mm -hmm. um, but the most severe restrictions on, on women's rights tend to be in Middle East and North Africa. Now, uh, as part of my dissertation, I looked, I tried to kind of break apart, you know, is that the religious belief or is it something else going on culturally? Um, and for that, I, I again, use World Value Survey data because they ask individual level questions. So you have data about you know what percentage of the population adheres to this particular religion, as well as what does the individual answering the questions um, identify with. Um, and so when I when I broke it down at kind of like the micro and macro level, I found that the individual level belief didn't matter. It was that macro level of the percentage. So the way I interpret that is somebody who is a Muslim living in the United States would be far less likely to be intolerant of women's participation in the labor market, but somebody who might be like an atheist living in Egypt would be more likely to be intolerant of women. Mm -hmm. So it seems more of a cultural thing than a strict component of the religion. Hmm. That's an interesting result. I thought it was pretty interesting. Oh. Um, all right. Well, anything else here? Some final questions. Looks like a good place to, to wrap. I want to thank you so much for enlightening us on your work uh, with women's well-being around the world and how economic freedom plays such a role. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. And uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us. Uh, be sure to forward this along to friends and family via email or what other social device you have. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.